Say something. Something is better than nothing. Okay. That's close enough. <laughs> and we're back. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Hi. Do I have to say the thing? You have to say the thing or else nobody knows what they're doing here. And we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages. The podcast is about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. And I'm Mike R. Coming to you and live boy, on the mic. Do we have a show <laughs> for you Today on RMA, it's Dave Smith joining us from the Recovery Dharma Revolution, and we are going to discuss uh, everything uh, Buddhism and Dharma and recovery. And uh, Mike was able to have a great conversation with him. It was great. We're gonna just. It was a great. It was great. 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 And uh, we've got a great show for you. All this and more today <laughs> on a very special edition of R. Hey, hey. winging it, folks. Hey, how winging do you, it from Zoom. How do you make an alcoholic wine? Yeah. Take away the blue book. <laughs> I, just, I just made that up. I'm sorry. I apologize. The blue book. I didn't have a lot. Wait, the big book. Sorry. The big the book. Big book. <laughs> the big book. It is blue. blue. It's blue. I got I got I got it right here. You have this is, how many big books do you have? Uh, this is your big book, so I only have one. Why do you have my big book? You gave it to me. You were um, like, you should read this. I think you were still proselytizing. I don't know. See? Does it have my notes in it? Can you hear that? Does it have my name in it? It does. It has your name and all your notes. I, it's funny yeah. the stuff that you underlined in here, though. Like, um, read one thing I underlined while I was in rehab or something. Uh, although financial recovery is the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never proceeded. And that had a little star next to it mm. as well. Yeah, it, it was fully engaged. Look, this is good. The business of resentment is infinitely grave. And then you put a little a little skull and crossbones next to infinitely grave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is great. I uh, I was looking. That's all we had to do. I was looking through that um, the other day. I don't know why. Just uh, curiosity. Felt the. Yeah, that's one of a few big books. I mean, one thing that I noticed while I was traveling through all of these recovery um, places, you know, rehabs, outpatients, you could always get a free big book. Um, They always had these on hand, and uh, I remember specifically probably that big book when they give you the. The paperback one, which I love those. It's um, basically they hand them out to you, even though they say it's not a 12 step. Um, you know, they always have to say for some reason, we're not affiliated with AA, but here's your free big book. Right. And the first three steps are on the wall. That's what we're going to do while you're here. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I have, I think, three or four big books. Only enough uh, time to get to the first three during a 30 day yeah. uh, stay. Is that how that well, goes? That's- I, I remember distinctly at Long Island Center for Recovery, which was my first rehab out on Long Island. Um, I remember sitting in that first group room where they're introducing everybody and um, and they point to the wall and they had steps one, two, three. And the facilitator actually said, you know, we're going to we only have time. You know, we're going to go through the first three steps during this uh, 
during your stay here, but this is not affiliated with AA. <laughs> well, it just speaks to like how ubiquitous the 12 step model has been, you know, and has taken over and all the, the, the rehabs and so forth, you know, it's just, yeah, well, they don't, they didn't seem to have their own ideas. You know, I feel like anytime they were talking to us, I mean, not, not the therapist so much It's just the facilitator guys who are like running the place. Not when I was in my actual sessions. Right. Um, you know, I felt like they didn't know what else, what else to tell us. They were just like, here, take this book. <laughs> and then they would just reinforce what you already read. Well, I mean, it's a great business model when you think of it. You use someone else's program and you charge $40,000 for the month. It's, uh, it's really quite, quite a model, quite a business model. Yeah. Uh, so do we have some reviews? I think we do. Um, we do have some reviews. I just wanted to, um, something we haven't been doing lately is oh. welcome to all the monsters listening stateside around the uh, world, down the street, across the table and right next door. Welcome all settle in, buckle up and get ready for excitement, comedy, tragedy, intrigue, mystery, and so much more. Where can they find us? We don't do this part of the show anymore. You can't find what us is- anywhere. I mean, you can but, find us on Facebook. Just type yeah. in recovery in the middle ages. Don't go to the website cause you'll get an infection. Uh, unless you're wearing protection, go to the, go to the website. If you've got it wrapped and wrap it and tap it, my friends. Well, uh, I have to say uh, we're doing better with our downloads and we've got way more, uh, people are interacting with us. And if we continue to keep this up Monsterverse, new websites are coming. I feel like we're going to get merch back. We might even put videos up. We just need, we need to push this thing. Yeah, why do you think more people are listening? I don't think we've gotten any better. No, it's definitely not gotten better. Um, maybe it has. We're we're a little looser these days, or I am at least. I'm not. Uh... <laughs> Somebody <laughs> tell you that? You feel a little looser. I feel a little looser, and yeah. it didn't hurt a bit. Hey, <laughs> uh, um, great so, reviews will be read on the air. Yeah, so we were... we're about to do that. But also, go to the fucking Patreon and subscribe. Because um, we I we end up turning around and giving that money out to people. At least I have been. <laughs> I should probably yeah. talk to you about that. I don't know yeah, if, if people like go to and they do five Ks and stuff. Like I, I'll just throw them like a RMA donation of twenty five bucks or so. I mean, I, I figure it just sort of like keeps you know keeps the name out there, engenders goodwill, yeah, if you will. That's why you we know. do this, guys. I mean, that money doesn't go to anything fun for us usually. Um, but we don't we have do fun. Get, we stopped having fun years ago. <laughs> we stopped having fun, but we have a little <laughs> bit of money in there and we do give it out. And Mike not, does this is this. not, this should not be an invitation for everybody to be like, give me money because money when drug addicts write you and ask you for money, there's always a bit of concern. Yes. So, but it is, it's for a good cause. Um, and, uh, it's at patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages or join us on Facebook. Uh, we have a nice recovery group on there. Just uh, go to the group and then you can ask to join and one of our lovely moderators will let you in or tell you to go fuck off, depending. <laughs> depending on how your what your approach is. Um, yeah. Do we have any soberversaries? Yeah, we do actually. And thank you, uh, the uh, RMA den mother, Melissa, has so graciously put this together for us. The latest Monster News. So we have a very big and exciting... A uh, couple of 
soberversaries to celebrate it. We've got Zed with nine years clean and sober. Wow, that's great. Uh, congratulations, Zed. And Nuevo we were, yeah. años. Mm -hmm. Nuevo años. And uh, <laughs> we were actually uh, Ben's taking Spanish. About so. it. We were discussing it on the Patreon uh, Discord group uh, the other night. And, um, you know, I, I, of course, had to say, Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead, which is uh, a Pulp Fiction right. quote. He's it's like, yeah, thanks. I worked at Blockbuster. I got that all the time. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, we were talking about Pulp Fiction a bit. But congratulations, Zed. And then we have the great David K with seven years. All right. So, Congratulations, David. And uh, he actually posted a picture. Um, and thanks for posting that on the uh, Recovering the Middle Ages Facebook group. And it was cool because he he showed like his before and after. Yes. And, uh, there's, and a sort of there's a great picture of him doing a, a funnel on there from old college drinking days. Yeah, I love this. He writes on the group. He says, seven years today. Odette, grateful. Love my life. Um, and yeah, he's got some funny pictures on here, but he looks great today. Um, yes. Yeah, good looking chap. So uh, congratulations, David. Um, and that's all I got on the Den Mother thing. Okay. So uh, thank you, Melissa, for, for doing that. And let us know if you've got a soberversary. We'd love to celebrate it with you on the air. Yeah. And, Buy you a drink. But <laughs> <laughs> so. but that is the thing that people, you know, that is the thing that people do. They they celebrate their one year sober anniversary by having drink because they think they can drink like a normal person. Don't be that person. Right. Don't be that person. But you were never normal to begin yeah. with. <laughs> uh, so hey, speaking of which, how are all of our what? sober October people out there doing? Yeah, <laughs> Every, sober. Everybody sober. hanging in there. It's uh, what is it? It's the seventeenth. The Ides of October. No, wait. It's the Ides of October Something. or no? That's not the 17th, yeah. right? It's a different Lies. day. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you're halfway through. Yeah. What? Halfway. Roughly. Halfway through. Yeah. It's October, and it's not only is it Sobertober, but it's the hardest month of the year for me. I talk about this every year at October. I feel like we've been doing this for three years, maybe. And every October, I go into a whole spiel about, I've got this birthday, I've got that birthday, oh, I've yeah. got anniversary. Um, but it is a big year for um, my mom is turning 80, or she did turn 80. Um, wow, congrats. My, my wife's got her birthday coming up. I've got an anniversary. Noah's got his bar mitzvah year. He's 13. Wow. Is he getting bar mitzvah? Turning. Well, no, I, I kind of joke. I say when we went to, because we're not, we don't, uh, we're not Jewish, so we don't do a bar mitzvah, but it's kind of some shtick I do because he went to that concert um, when we saw Weezer. Right. And all of that. And so I said, that's your Gentile bar mitzvah. <laughs> the Weezer and the Foo Fighters. And, uh, so all of his presents have been given to him uh, already, basically. So his birthday is going to come up on the 24th, and he's going to have everything. I don't know. What would you do in that scenario? Do you feel guilty when you do that? Um, yeah, I would have to produce something on the day, even though it's like something. a small something, you know? Yeah, anything. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we'll we'll give him a notebook or something. <laughs> well, you know what, a sketchbook or a moleskin is a is a great gift. It's inexpensive and it and it speaks to uh, showing that you're interested in having his creativity flower. <laughs> yes, 
a, a moleskin. Last year, he says he got gypped. But the truth is, he got this awesome desk, and he was supposed to clean out his office, take the old desk out, and put this desk in that he got for his birthday. He didn't do it until this year. And so <laughs> when he finally did it, he goes, wow, this is an awesome desk. I guess I didn't get chipped. I'm like, yeah, you just had to fucking clean up your office. Yeah. Oh, good luck you with know, that. So I'm using it right now, and uh, it is amazing. What, um, what is it with kids at that age that seem like completely unable to uh... – to lock into shit, you know, like Ben is Ben's room is a fucking disaster. No matter what I do to sort of make it a livable space, it always looks like a hamster cage. And, and in fact, he has two, ha two mice in there. And the, the one, the one sick mouse is not getting any better. I've been, I've been giving it gabapentin. Like it's just some fucking street addict in Kensington. And it's still, nothing is happening to this mouse. Like it's, it seems to be able to shake off, gabapentin like it's nothing you know um this mouse should be studied it should be studied perhaps um but anyway so like he can't like get into the rhythm of giving them because i'm like i finally figured out you mix the you mix the drugs with um food and you smear it on a cheerio and the mouse mm. will eat it no problem you know just like a human right <laughs> mix the drugs with some food i don't yeah. know um but the thing is, you have to remember to do that twice a day, and it's it's a he he just can't, you know. So I try and do it, and I forget. And I don't have time to be mixing mouse fucking you know works. <laughs> Make sure works. This mouse is eating its drugs, you know. I don't know. The mouse is otherwise doing well. I I mean, it seems fine aside from the fact that it's yeah. gnawing off its leg. <laughs> you know. Anyway, it could be, it could be a lot worse. Um, when, when you know it better, do you do better? Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. Got to read this fucking thing again. All right. When I you know better, every time. you do better. But sometimes doing better depends on what tools are available to you. As two men in recovery That's from alcohol use disorder, we know how difficult it can be to seek help for a disease that's so stigmatized. You got me stigmatized. If you're struggling to get sober, Soberlink can help. Silverlink's remote alcohol monitoring system was specifically designed to help in your recovery. It's not just some breathalyzer you buy at the store. Small enough to fit in your pocket and discreet enough to use in public or in front of your kids, the Silverlink devices combine facial recognition, tamper detection, and real-time results so friends and family know instantly that you're sober and working towards your recovery goals. This system would have been a game-changer for Nat and I during early recovery when every little bit helps. Yeah, I really can't think of a better tool for tracking and sharing progress and rebuilding trust in relationships. Make, 20 Make 2023 a memorable one. Visit www.soberlink.com slash middle hyphen ages, don't say it, to sign up and receive $50 <laughs> off your device. $50 off, folks. Go and get I one. will not middle hyphen your ages go get two sober link devices give one to everybody in your family who has an alcohol use disorder because as we know this shit runs in families so chances are if you have a drinking problem somebody else in your family does too we recommend using it in front of your children constantly incessantly every day daddy's blowing into his special toy now <laughs> no uh, and this is the part where i say it really is seriously folks uh, seriously folks um this is a great tool we highly recommend it if you're looking to prove everything to everyone that you're really doing it now. Um, 
because you know how it is. People do not believe you. Every single time you told them over the years, I swear I'm sober, <laughs> I'm clean. I didn't just go run to Brooklyn and uh, <laughs> and grab dope from my dealer, you know, and come back and pretend like I was on a long lunch. No, I'm actually on a long lunch this time. And here you go. Now, you know, so sober link, go get one today. Flip the bird to doubters and haters in your family. Do it full on. Okay. So, fuck you today. So, um, well, you want to talk about, you want to do the reviews or do you want to talk about how the, our town is coming apart at the seams? Um, let's, uh, <laughs> let's do the reviews first. I think we do that and then do the news. Okay. Um, we have gotten reviews actually, and you can give us a review if you go to Apple podcasts and uh, someone just gave us a review and said, they told me to do this. So I did it. So I'm telling more of you, please reviews, reviews, go to Apple podcasts and leave a five star. We will read it if it's good. So we've got one today. I, and, we'll know, read it if it's bad too. <laughs> uh, the bad ones are funny. If it's bad. Uh, so we do have a review. We have two we actually. Did you notice there's another one? One from no. 10, 11 and one from 10, 12. Oh, thank you guys. Um, do you want to read the first one? Yeah. J and J on 10, 11, 2023 left a five-star review saying funny and relatable. These guys seem down to earth and deliver a non-preachy and not singularly focused approach to recovery. Open to any way that will help. I appreciate this podcast. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank um, you for calling us funny and relatable. Yeah, I like being funny and relatable. Yes. Um, we got another review. Uh, it's from Andrew, last name unknown. And it's five stars. Worth it. It says, they told me to leave a review. So I did. Thank you. Uh, but also, this is a really amazing podcast. Mike and I are both hilarious as well as honest, which is something that you don't get nowadays. Not only is it educational, but it's uplifting to hear other people's viewpoints on addiction based on their lived experience. Even though I didn't have kids, even though I don't have kids, I love listening to them talk about their kids because one day I plan to have children. And I've always wondered what that conversation would look like when talking about drugs and alcohol. Favorite part is when they sing the recovery in the new song, Mother Effer. <laughs> Thank you very much. I told you, man, you're going to be doing that for the rest of your life. How are we going to do it on when we're we're like remote this time? Do I have to like cut and paste one? You might. I'm not sure mm -hmm. why that doesn't fly in uh, from super the board. I was thinking, do you guys think I should do like a fully produced version of that where I do like overdubs and... <laughs> And like record it and make it sound crazy and good. Three or is it so much better when I just wing it? Three part harmonies. You could do I, it yeah, like I the Beach four Boys. Part yeah. Like it double each part and we <laughs> could pan them out wide. We can have, you know, a big cathedral sound on it on the backups. We don't have time for that shit, do we? I know you have time for this. <laughs> um, so I really wanted to just touch lightly on you. You, you all may remember. Last week we discussed uh, how our how our school board was going uh, 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 kind of crazy because they found out that the, uh, the principal that they hired for the for the elementary school uh, several years earlier had had some sort of affair or abuse situation with a seventeen year old, 
Yes. And uh, so she resigned. But um, there was a board meeting that happened. And uh, I didn't go to the board meeting, but I did live stream it on YouTube. I don't know if you did you do that? Well, Noah you know, was actually Noah. there recording it, right? Noah is in the backstage uh, club. So he was filming it on like a legit TV film camera. I mean, well, it's not filming. I think it's digital. But yeah, so he got to watch it in person and to see the town completely implode on itself. <laughs> it was uh, it was really something because, you know, I guess they allowed public comment, but only one person had the balls to get up there and, and kind of interrogate the superintendent about, you know, why he didn't, um, you know, do this, that, or the other thing to sort of dig into this person's past and why didn't they check on the, you know, the resume and all this stuff. And, you know, the superintendent was a bit hampered by what he could discuss from a personnel perspective. So he kind of, kind of wanted to walk around the issue. I mean, he, he made some sort of, you know, mild statement or something that clearly didn't satisfy anybody. And, but then when the, the person who was asking a, him a question reiterated her question, he got very like snotty and curt and it didn't go over well. And, and immediately social media went ablaze at, at the attitude, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he was a little, uh, yeah. Yeah. He was like, so, you asked me this question and he sounds a bit like Mario. He's like, it's a me. <laughs> yeah, honey. Yeah. And so he's got a very charming Italian accent, but he was pretty much like, <laughs> it's, I mean, now I'm going to picture him as Mario in my head. All right. Know, you never, every single time I'm at one of those things where he's talking, I say to Noah, it's a me. <laughs> let's you go. Know, let's go. <laughs> So yeah, he was he was clearly annoyed with this person, continually asking, I guess, according to him, the same question over and over again. Um, well, and, and then at, at the end, we had our our um, you know our our media gadfly got up there and said he was there to represent the taxpayers. I think we talked about this guy a little bit last week, who has his own like oh. news thing on Facebook and he goes around like harassing the shit out of every crooked politician on Long Island, which is great, but he's always, he's kind of a jerk, you know? Um, but anyway, he gets up there and he's, and, and right at the end of the meeting, he just says, and I have information that one of you, and he named the school board members wife was a sorority sister with this woman who was hired and I want to know all about that. And it, as oh my God, as it, and the fucking place went bananas, bananas. It was amazing. They ended it was the amazing. meeting. He's everybody like, walked out. Um, don't so you think, you know, <laughs> and he says the guy's name, you know, who's on the board and he's like, and his wife had a prior relationship with the principal. How could you not know? And then the big security guy walks. I got to get Noah to send me this because he was there. Yeah. And he actually recorded with his phone that part. <laughs> so I have it on video. Excellent. Excellent. So I will, I'm trying to get it from him right now. He's at school, so I shouldn't be doing this, but it's too good. And uh, <laughs> they started, this guy started advancing on him, you know, like a security guard. Right. And he's like, don't. You don't touch me. You don't want to touch me. I'm going to sue. And the guy like backed off a little bit. <laughs> well, because this guy has sued like 25 people already for this kind yeah. of stuff. Like he shows up at these open meetings where he should be allowed to speak. And then he, you know, he comes across like a bull in a china shop and then they want to shut him up and they can't, you know. Yeah. But the, the, the postscript to this is the next day, uh, Ben's Spanish teacher just announces that 
so in, in this whole environment where apparently the superintendent is allegedly creating a toxic atmosphere for teachers and staff in the district, um, my wife, well, the Ben's Spanish teacher tells him, you know what, I'm quitting for personal reasons and I won't be ever in your class again. Uh, bye. Yeah, what you know what? <laughs> so, so there's no announcement of this to the parents from the school. Right. It's just they told Ben in class. So Ben came home. He's like, oh, my Spanish teacher just quit. And uh, so Aaron just kind of posts on, you know, the the community um, school Facebook group. Hey, you know, does anybody know if they're going what to happen? What happened? And if they're going to put a, a new person in charge. And this one woman like doxed her and put up where my wife worked and all this other stuff. And it's like, you know, if this was you where you worked in that other district, would you be asking all these personal, it was like some unhinged rant. And, um, and then my wife got a text message from somebody else who was like, Oh, don't mind her. She's, she's just drunk all the time and causes trouble and nobody likes her. You know, I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Wow. So there's lots of high drama going on in Oyster Bay. And I'm I'm sure we've lost all the listeners because nobody gives a shit about what goes on at our school board meetings. But um, I thought it was kind of what's happening. Yeah. That's what's going down. And uh, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy people uh, in this town, but God bless him. I'm I'm happy to basically stay out of it. Well, Um, I had a, that's exactly the thing. You can't engage. Like, and I make this mistake every few months. I drop into that group, and and something pisses me off, and I and I and I answer, yep. and I get into a fight with someone, and then I'm like, why am I like, and it, and and this shit like gets under my skin, like like it yeah. annoys me, and it'll annoy me all day and ruin my day. And this like as somebody who should know better, as somebody who is supposedly like. Um, taken these lessons from recovery and applied them to my yeah. life. I know I should not be doing this shit, you know, but I do yeah, it anyway. And it, at, at great cost no. to my, my mental health and sanity. So it doesn't do anything for you. And I remember when we first met when we started to do the show, I feel like we had this conversation where you were saying the same thing. Yeah. Like I get so involved and I don't know why I do it. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's better for me to keep my head in the sand and just not even engage or to like, you know, am I totally just avoiding what's actually happening or you know? <laughs> it's a fine line in the middle, I think. Yeah. I was, I was having this debate with uh, a friend of mine about, you know, there's so much uh, the horrifying events in Israel right now. And he was going on and on about it and how mm. horrible it is. And, and of course I agree it's horrible. And I said, you know, if the, but if the details and the news is upsetting you this much, you don't have to hear all of it. You know, it doesn't do anything for you. And then I said, you know, I'm not keeping my head in the sand, but I'm not going to dwell on all of the horror that's happening in the world because yes, it's horrible, but it's always going on like that in some place or another. So I, you know, and then he accused me of having my head in the sand, that sort of thing. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm much happier not dwelling on all of these things, you know. But you know, maybe I'm a little out of it because of it. Well, I mean, you don't control foreign policy decisions in the Middle East for the U.S. State Department, as far as I know. So you know, a steady diet. I mean, you can have an opinion on it. You can you can feel sympathy and empathy for people who are involved in it. But you know, following it. You know, I just can't uh, just so can't closely as, you know, it, like what what is the benefit the versus the cost to your to your mental health is my question. You know, um, yeah. and I guess what some people the, could accuse accuse you of, you know, not caring, but I don't I'm sure that's not the case. So, like, what's the you know, mm. I don't know. Um, 
have to be mindful of time today, I'm afraid. Yes. Um, what, what time do we have? Okay, so we have to be... Um, like 15 minutes. Yeah. Okay, 15 minutes. Um, we okay. had one more email, and then we'll do the wrap to read. Didn't you have an email? I got an email. Okay. So, um, which is sort of sort of dovetails with, uh, with today's topic and today's interview. Um, this is from Anonymous. It was signed Anonymous, although... Anonymous, if you're sending anonymous emails, you should know that your name appears at the top. I saw that. It's like anonymous. <laughs> it says the full name. Of right. Uh, hi, Mike and Nat. I wanted to write and let you know that I liked what Mike said in episode 121 about spirituality. I do not think spirituality helped me get sober, but it helps me to stay sober as I get more in touch with my spirituality. I initially became sober from CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, from Annie Grace and medication through the Sinclair method. In Push Off From Here, Laura McCohen, have you heard of Laura McCohen? She keeps popping up no. on my Instagram and stuff. Uh, she says that sobriety is an uncovering of your dharma, which she says is our unique blueprint or an essence that exists inside of each person. She says the Greeks have a similar concept to dharma called gnosis or an inner knowledge, yeah. inner knowing that brings one closer to God or to the experience of God. She said that once she removed alcohol, she was able to connect with her dharma of becoming an author and a more connected mother. She says connecting with our dharma is what you gain when you say no to alcohol. She says we, she says, we abandon ourselves when we cover our dharma with addictions when trying to numb slash survive. I love this perspective, and it is a motivator for me not to drink. It has been healing to me to see that my alcoholic dad did not abandon me, but instead abandoned himself and his gnosis when he started drinking after trauma in Vietnam. I also covered up, covered mine up with alcohol after multiple traumas. What do you guys think? Thank you for everything, Anonymous. Thank you very much for writing. Um, that's Mike Gar at MiddleAgesRecovery.com. I think that this is an incredibly... Um, insightful way of looking at uh, recovery. And, you know, I I, kind of tossed a a question at Dave Smith in the interview, and I said, do you think it's possible to to successfully follow like a dharmic path while you are still using? And he said, he he said he didn't see how it was possible. And I, and, and I kind of agree because they're, they're really two divergent things, right? Like you're either, um, if you're covering up your your gnosis or your inner knowledge, your inner blueprint or your essence, then it's extremely hard to see it. Um, and the, I think the real work can begin on your internal life once you put down the the drugs or the alcohol. But I think that has to happen first. Otherwise, I, I question, you know, how much you're really getting out of like a, 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 a dharmic practice or, um, you know, or, or even what you perceive as spirituality while you're still um, using. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a slippery slope um, because I think of it the same way you might say, if you're continuing to, let's say you're not able to get fully sober, but you're attempting to, but in during that process, you maybe have a drink because you're just not quite there yet, but you are working on some of the basic you know, inner work to begin getting yourself to a place where you can be sober. I feel like it should probably be the same thing. So long as, you know, you're in the process of working through that. Now, if you're just, you know, blindly going, you know, through your doing your practices, but you're never intending to sort of push yourself all the way in the right direction, you know, maybe he's right, but I don't know. It's, that sounds like an all or nothing. 
you know, you can attempt to follow a path or you can want to or try to and be failing so long as, you know, you keep trying. Well, and, and I think the interesting part of that is like, as, as you'll hear in the interview, Dave uh, got into Buddhism long before his recovery. I mean, he was doing retreats and so on from the age of like 18, uh, but he didn't get sober until like when he was somewhere around age 30. So he was running those two things in parallel. And, and you know, I know to me, it's kind of like, well, um, maybe it's like going out and, and drinking once you've had some experience with AA, like you, you're not in, you know, you still have those seeds that are planted in your head that are going to, you know, pop up even while you're in the midst of doing, doing the drinking or whatever. Um, yeah. But I, so, so I get, you know, that having that some sort of a practice to point you in the right direction, but I think ultimately if you really want to make, you know, lasting improvement and change, you need to, you know, I, for me, abstinence would be the only way to do that. I don't, I, I, I can't see how I could continue to, to drink and, and still maintain like a, a, a practice, but you know, people, I guess people do. Right. I mean, yeah, it's painful. I mean, I, a lot of you out there, I'm sure have heard this in the rooms or in recovery. It's uh, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer. <laughs> and like once, or you, I've said this before too, once you, you go to that first recovery meeting or you start to think about what alcohol and drugs are doing to you, it completely ruins using for most people. You know, like once I identified as an addict or an alcoholic and I went back out and I was used, it just fucks everything up. It always ruined my high. Uh, and people say that all the time. Once you start going to AA and you try and drink, it's like, it just sucks. You, you hate yourself. <laughs> you got the like, inner guilt. The hangovers are yeah. worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great interview. Yeah. I listened to it, and I'm sorry, guys, I could not uh, participate in the interview. Um, I just could not get there, and I had I totally fucking sucked. I wanted to. But it was a very good interview, and um, I think you guys are going to like it, and hopefully uh, it sounds like he wants to come back on. Yeah, it does. You know? It does, right? Uh, continue the discussion because really they're just as he says um you're scratching the surface right uh, there's so much to talk about and he's a sharp dude do you think that um you can have a relationship with god or um an experience of god um while you're drinking or using and and you know the the answer would be maybe yes um because the flip side is like people that like sh shamanic cultures and everybody, you know, when you're, you're using plant medicine and stuff, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're tripping in the cosmos, right. And you're having an experience with God. Right. But is it, is it the more pedestrian drugs like alcohol and so on? Like, is it possible? Um, I think it's not only possible, it happens. You hear about it all the time. Someone will be in the midst of a, a bender or, and, you know, hanging over and they have this white light moment I think, you know, God, if we were to believe that this is an, you know, omniscient, all-powerful being that lives outside of space and time, why couldn't that power push through a little bit of beer? Like, I think oh. you definitely can. It's not the same, but um, God can reach you wherever you are. God is everything or God is nothing, right? Right. He's that beer you're drinking. He's the everything. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Yes. I don't know. I want to talk more about that another time. But for right now, um, we're going to hand the mic over to Mike 
That's right. Mike on the mic. And uh, here's the interview that I did with Dave Smith. Um, I introduced him in the interview, so I'm not going to do that here. But if you want to learn more about Dave and what he does, uh, DaveSmithDharma.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And here's me talking with Dave Smith. As they say, are you from? Yes, thank you. Uh, Yes, born and raised here. How did you manage to have a regular voice? Uh, I, you know, I have no idea because my mother is actually from Queens and my father's from New Jersey. So the fact that I ended up without any kind of accent whatsoever is just a weird miracle. I'm not sure. Yeah, you're very benign. You could be anywhere in America. (laughs) You are originally from back here, right? But a little further from uh, Massachusetts, further north. north. But you've been out of New England for a while, right? So you're you're in Colorado now. Yeah, I've, yeah, I'm in Colorado. I've been out of New England for almost 15 years now. I was in I was in I moved from Massachusetts to Nashville, Nashville, Los Angeles for a couple of years, and then I've been here for like seven. Oh wow! Uh, you getting any weather yet? Is it cold? 51 degrees. Yeah, not bad. No, I'll take it. Yeah. So I'm going to throw an uh, introduction out there, and then we can uh, get started, if that works for you. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Today's guest on RMA is Dave Smith. Uh, For nearly 30 years, Dave Smith has had a Buddhist practice rooted in the insight meditation tradition, uh, Vipassana. He was empowered to teach through the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society. Uh, He's a certified teacher for cultivating emotional balance, uh, which combines contemporary emotion-based scientific research with contemplative practices and psychology drawn from Buddhism. He studied Buddhist psychology at the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies. Uh, Dave also teaches meditation retreats, weekly live Dharma classes, online courses and workshops. One of them, I believe, is uh, a Buddhist or Buddhist recovery. I think I saw on your no, website. No, that one's over, unfortunately. It is okay. Um, he also works with students one to one through his Dharma mentoring program. In 2016, he founded the Secular Dharma Foundation to foster the advancement of emotional and psychological well-being through the education and integration of mindfulness, psychology, and various therapeutic modalities. He's brought Dharma and meditative interventions into a variety of settings, including jails, prisons, youth detention centers, and addiction treatment facilities. Dave lives in rural Colorado with his wife and two sons. So that's a lot. Uh, I know, I was thinking you read it, I was like, God, I was like, man, a lot of shit. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, welcome to RMA. Thanks for for coming on and doing this. Um, yeah, happy to be here. I think uh, I think you and I probably travel in slightly different Buddhist orbits. Um, my practice over the years and Touchstone has been sort of through Soto Zen, um, mm-hmm. but there isn't a, a ton of intersection between Zen and re- the recovery movement in, in in Soto Zen. Maybe there doesn't need to be. Um, maybe that's a good thing. I, I don't know. Um, and as help, but as helpful as I found, like the practice of Zen in my own uh, recovery journey, it seems like um, recovery Dharma and refuge recovery and against the stream were sort of way more lasered in on the nexus between recovery and Buddhism than some of the other schools, maybe. Uh, I don't want to sort of geek out on the differences between Buddhist schools because my audience will just tune out and do something else. But uh, I I was uh, looking for a recovery podcast, um, you know, that sort of something that I hadn't come across before that sort of dealt with the intersection of of Buddhism and Dharma and recovery. And I stumbled upon yours and it led me into a pretty deep 
Dave Smith rabbit hole. Uh, I started listening to a lot of the stuff that you had out there. And a recent podcast of yours, uh, episode titled The Dharma of Addiction, kind of really set me up, blew me away. Uh, And I figured I wanted to have you on to talk about some stuff because our our listeners are a pretty diverse group of people. They come from all different uh, recovery traditions. We have 12-step folks, uh, smart recovery, this naked mind, you know, rational recovery, those folks are still around. But whenever, whenever we do an episode on Buddhism, like it piques a lot of people's interest. We get a lot of questions, um, you know, and, and a lot of uh, people who wish that we'd do some more episodes uh, with the Buddhist tilt, which makes me happy. Um, so, uh, you know, I was, I'm happy that you're coming on to talk about it. So maybe the way to get started is you could share a, a brief overview of your own journey, how you came to be exposed to Buddhism or the Dharma, which I understand from your talk are, are two distinct things. Um, Very much so. Uh, oh, I understand you encountered the Dharma at an early age, earlier than some other people. So maybe you could talk about that history, maybe a little bit on your history with substance abuse and where you found recovery, that sort of thing. Sure. Well, I was born in 1974 in Norfolk, Virginia. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, let me just think about this for a minute. I... Um, I would say this, and this is a very kind of, I I, I guess, maybe a popular thing to say, but it's very much alive in pop culture around addiction, is I think that trauma was set in my system before addiction. I had had a lot of catastrophic loss when I was young. My sister died in a car accident when I was 11, and I just kind of, and, and I just had people really close to me die really tragically when I was young. And like, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, mm. back at school at Monday, nobody's talking about it. Mm. So I had, I already had this traumatic loss thing going. And I think that drugs and alcohol just became my answer for that. And so, I mean, I was drinking, um, you know, I was getting drunk on the weekends when I was like 12, mm-hmm. 11, 12. I grew up around alcohol and I grew up around alcohol and it was never a bad thing. You know, my father was the 80s, you know, construction worker, Southern New Hampshire was like, you know, alcohol was a reward for a hard day's work. There was no, I had no negative connotation with it. My father wasn't mean or, you know, my father got drunk a lot, but it wasn't in my mind, it wasn't a problem. It was like, hey, we worked hard today. Let's celebrate. Right. That was kind of the way that I thought about it. And then, um, you know, and I also went to Alateen a little bit when I was young. Um, but I, I'd hear the stories and some of the stories in AA. I went to AA meetings when I was like 13, 14. And like, I always thought it sounded awesome. I was like, I can't fucking wait to do that. That sounds like <laughs> I cannot wait. Like these people have these killer stories. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, you know, it worked for me for a long time. And then so my the, the, the timeline's really, really kind of jacked up, as always is the case. But when I was 18, I, I actually lived down the street from a guy named Daniel Goleman, who's kind of a famous writer on emotional intelligence. And I was friends with his kids. And so I started, I got introduced to mindfulness. So we could say mindfulness, insight, meditation, Theravada Buddhism, that that tradition of practice at the age of 18, which was tremendously helpful for me, totally gave me a worldview. Basically what I was given now that I think about it, looking back, when I was 18, I had all this trauma, all this loss, all this suffering. And my first teacher, Steve Smith, basically gave me a framework for life. He's like, yeah, like there's suffering and everybody suffers. And it's kind of actually not a big deal. And a lot of it's created in your mind. A lot of the suffering that you experience is actually imagined in your own head. It's not even real. 
And so that really helped me. And mindfulness gave me a lens to view that and be like, okay, like I'm suffering in my mind, but I'm actually creating it. And I can like pull away from that and I can be in my body or I can be in my breath, you know? And so I did that, but then I didn't get sober till I was 28. So for 10 years, I, you know, I was in, I was also in bands. I was part of the whole Scott Punk Boston movement, Boston's, Mighty Mighty Boston's, all that stuff, Warped mm. Tour. I was all part of that stuff. I played in bands. And so it was really, you know, from 18 to 28, partying and drinking and doing drugs and playing in bands. It was totally working for me. I had no interest in not doing that. <laughs> right. And I was also doing, um, I was also going on these Vipassana meditation Dharma retreats. And I was, so I was living this kind of double life experience. Uh, and then, of course, long story short, by the time I was 28, the drinking and the drugs and the bands and all that, I just totally bottomed out. And I got sober in 03, 20 years ago. Um, and so since then, I've kind of weaved between these two worlds. Um, at, at what, yeah, without going on and on, that's kind of that's kind of where I got to where I'm at these days. At, at what point did you realize that the drinking and the drugs were, were going to be an issue or were an issue? Because, you know, I'm fascinated um, by this whole idea of like maintaining a Buddhist practice while simultaneously out there drinking and, and doing drugs, because that was kind of, kind of parallels my own path in some ways yeah. and and well i highly discourage people try that <laughs> right i think that's a bad, that's a bad move right if you if it, listen you know don't don't try to do those two at the same time it's very confusing it's kind of like the double life thing you know yeah and so you know i really i don't think that you can do both um but I would say for the last i would say maybe about the last maybe two years but definitely the last year of active using I knew it was I knew it was coming to an end. I had already knew about Buddhism. I, I knew there was another I knew there was an alternative. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew about Buddhist practice. I'd sat retreats. I valued it. I'd been to AA before as a kid. I knew there was an exit door. And I knew that it was going to be a painful exit door. And I didn't really want to do it. I knew it was going to happen eventually. And it just sort of did. Right. I mean, I knew it. Some, even when I was young, I remember being like, I'm going to end up in these rooms someday. Like, I wasn't that surprised. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I was basically like, I'm going to milk as much, I'm going to milk all the fun out of this as I, as I can. Right. And then sort of figure there was always a way out, uh, you know, at the end of it. Um, you know, <laughs> some people have a little hard time finding that door, you know. I mean, I'm lucky. <laughs> I think that most people don't realize it. I mean, I knew the whole time that there was an exit door. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, why I think people struggle with addiction is they can't imagine any other way to live. Yeah. But I'd always had that in the back of my head. I was like, well, if this gets really bad, I can kind of get out. I mean, at the time, did you have any sort of conscious awareness that um, that it was trauma that was informing you know, that was causing you to go down this, this road, because, you know, you, you've talked about Gabor Mate and his, his theory that trauma is yeah. basically at the basis of all addiction. And, and, um, you know, addiction is really like a maladaptive coping mechanism for handling trauma. Right. Um, I think that's true for a large percentage of the people. The thing I don't like about Gabor Mate, and I don't like it when people use words like always and never, Yeah, mm -hmm. like he, he'll say it's always, you know, addiction's always about trauma. I'm like, no, maybe like 80%, like <laughs> mostly it is. But I think there's people out there and I've met them, people who have lived good lives, they're untraumatized, they were mostly happy people and they did some cocaine and they just liked it too much. I mean, that shit happens. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think, I mean, I think I knew it. I didn't know it explicitly. You know, because the word, you know, back in 03, you know, trauma wasn't, you know, trauma's, trauma's not new, but the conversation around trauma hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. But I would say it wasn't until I was about, 
10 years sober, eight, eight or 10 years sober when I started working in addiction treatment as a career and was introduced to therapeutic clinical interventions and in, in, in trauma therapy on my own. That's when I started to put this together. I was like, oh, this is like, and so I was sober for eight or eight or eight, nine, 10 years before I even started to realize what you talked about. I was like, oh, this is like, I, I was like, oh, I got some stuff going on below that. Like I thought the, I thought the bottom, you know, you hit the bottom. We talk about hitting rock bottom. Mm-hmm. I thought the bottom was the bottom. I didn't realize there was actually a whole nother bottom. <laughs> you know, there was like, there yeah. was, I, I thought I was in the basement, but I was actually only on the first floor. Well, and, and so, yeah, I yeah. think rooting out that, you know, the stuff that's under the basement is, is important to, to, for a lasting recovery. And, and I mean, to me, that's kind of where, I mean, Buddhism is very helpful in that respect because when you sit down and start to look at what's going on up here, right. And, and you realize that there, you can put a little distance between what your mind is telling you what to do and then what you actually go out and do. I mean, it's, it, to me, it was like, it was a revelation. I mean, I, I'd been meditating for, for years, but it wasn't until I stopped drinking and, and that my meditation practice got like really, I, I hate to use the word useful because, you know, goallessness and all that shit, but, yeah, um, yeah, sure. but it became very easier for me to watch the, the chattering upstairs, I guess. You know, that's right. Yeah. And we think that, you know, it's just about the behavior, but, you know, and also too, like, you know, I mean, that's really in many ways. And we could talk about this some, if you want, cause there's a, I think there's a philosophical issue in Buddhist thought, because really, I think when we really, I mean, Buddhism is really ultimately an exploration of human suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and, you know, some people, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? I mean, the question is, how far down the rabbit hole does somebody in recovery need to go mm-hmm. to maintain an abstinence-based lifestyle? Or, you know, how much, how much, how far down the rabbit hole do we have to go to, like, actually be happy, joyous, and free and all that stuff? And I don't think we need to go all the way to the bottom. I, and I think everybody needs to go negotiate for themselves how much of that they want to do at this point. I mean, I'm so bought in. I, I'm, I'm definitely uh, curious to see how far down it goes, but I think that, that, you know, not all addiction is created equal and certainly not all trauma is created equal. So it's a, as much as AA would push back against us with this whole tragically unique thing, I think they're wrong about that. I think we're all very unique and our, our lives experiences are very, very personal, very, very particular and very, very specific. So I think that, you know, Dharma practice helps us negotiate that for ourselves about how many, how many rocks do I actually need to look under? Mm. Um, so you, so you got sober through AA? Totally. And, um, how, how did that work for you with the sort of sec- almost secular nature of Buddhism versus the higher power, um, situation you know, in AA? I got lucky again. I'm a lucky guy with this kind of stuff. I'm a, and I don't get me wrong. I can get worked up about stupid shit like everybody else, but you know, I got sober in Oh three. I went to AA a little bit and was kind of squirming with the whole thing. I was like, God, higher power, sponsorship, service work. I was like, yeah, I don't think I need that. And I, I don't recommend this, but what I did with 60 days sober, I went and signed up for the IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, has a three-month retreat. So with 60 Days Sober, I went and sat a 90-day retreat, a 90-day silent insight retreat, 10 hours of meditation a day, no talking for 90 days. And I thought that was going to fix me. I was like, I'm just going to, I really was so totally delusional. I was like, I'm going to go sit the 90-day retreat, 
and I'm just going to bang out this alcoholic addiction thing. I'm just going to like bang it right out. I'm just going <laughs> to wipe it, just be done with it. That was my attitude. And I came out the other side and it was like, that's not what happened. And then, um, and at the request of a couple of people, I was like, you know what? I just need to, I need to just buckle down and do this stupid AA thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, I need to get a sponsor. I need to work the steps. I was like, I just, I'm just going to do what they say because I'm totally, I just sat for 90 days and I'm still a lunatic, you know, <laughs> and like, and, and, you know, and I, so I just was like, out of, out of kind of sheer desperation, I was like, well, I'll just do it and see what happens. And I, I'm totally glad I did. But after that, I was, oh, I was just like, I didn't care anymore. Like God, higher power, whatever. Like none of all the common pitfalls, mm-hmm. I, conceptual pitfalls. I just didn't care. I was like, whatever. I was like, if they want me, I mean, I actually prayed to God. Mm. I mean, for the first three years of my recovery, I got out of bed every single morning and got down on my knees and asked God to relieve the obsession for a drink and drug for one day. I did that for the first three years that I, I didn't, I didn't believe it. I thought it was ridiculous. I did it anyway, but I can't say it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't turn you into a, a, a card carrying theist. <laughs> No, I just just thought it was silly. I just didn't care. I was just like, if this is what these people are telling me to do, like, what do I know? I was like, I I was kind of like, just kind of had this radical kind of like what I call AA beginner's mind, bro. I was like, I was just like, well, I'm just a fucking idiot anyway. Like, what do I know? Right. Like I ruined my life. Like if, you know, these people seem to have it together. If they want me to pray to some God to take the obsession for drugs and alcohol away from me, I'll, it takes eight seconds. I'll just do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I didn't have a problem with it. I thought it was silly, but I did it anyway. So there must have been some faith in the process, though, right? I mean, uh, I guess you'd mm-hmm. seen other people succeed, or by totally. by you know taking the cotton out of the ears and putting it in the mouth Same. or whatever. You know, I mean, that's what it was. I was like, these people obviously have figured something out, right? So I that's that, that's exactly how I would put it. That's well said. I totally had faith in the process, mm-hmm. um, and and I still do. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that we have a lot of f- folks that listen to us and are in our discord who come from different places, some, some in AA and some not. And, um, it's interesting how sort of ubiquitous the recovery terminology and certain ideas that come out of the 12 step movement are sort of taken hold of recovery as a whole. Um, you know, the, the idea of powerlessness, the idea of, uh, you know, turning something over the, 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 you know, searching fearless moral inventory, all that stuff. Like how, how, how that's sort of commonly accepted as the way to recover. What, what makes, what is Buddhist recovery? What is Dharmic recovery? And how, and how does it differ from, from a program like Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, now you're opening a fun can of worms. So <laughs> here's, here's just kind of, here's the silly thing. And I've I've had, I've been in this conversation for a long, long time and I've had it with everybody in the mix is the truth of the matter is Buddhist, so let's just say Buddhist recovery. Buddhist recovery is no different than Buddhism. So, so when you take Buddhist recovery, it's not like a different variation of Buddhism. It's just all the same Buddhism. Probably the most accurate way to say it, it's Buddhism for people in recovery. Uh-huh. It's recovery people who are just using Buddhism. The Buddhism's the same. Nothing changes. There's no like version of Buddhism for recovery. Like that's kind of a, a, a kind of like silly way to think about it. I just want to make that public service announcement. There's no different than that. <laughs> now, but, but the Buddhism and AA, there's a lot of differences. There's actually four primary differences that I would say that are kind of obvious. And this is kind of just good to know. Like, first of all, the big difference between 
12 step recovery in Buddhism is there's no God in Buddhism. Now people would argue with that, but that's Buddhism doesn't have theism. They don't have, they don't, this whole God thing is not even, it's completely, that idea is completely foreign from the Buddhist system of thought, right? Also, here's another big one, no powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Not only is there no powerlessness, Buddhism, Dharma practice would say, actually, you, all you have is power. Like it's all, you have to do it. You have to do it all yourself. You have to do all the heavy lifting. People like that until they realize they actually have to do it. <laughs> like I've worked with tons of people who come over to Buddhism and they're like, well, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, well, if you're not powerless, guess what, dude, you're going to have to do some serious work. And all of a sudden they rethink the whole thing. <laughs> so no God, no powerlessness, uh, no disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a Buddhist perspective, this idea that alcoholism, addiction is a disease, that's a completely foreign concept that does not work in the Buddhist system at all. Uh, and the last one, which I think is kind of the most interesting, well, they're all interesting, but the one that's, I think, um, really ups the game for Buddhism is there's no symptomology in the sense that, like, if I'm an alcohol, if I have an alcohol problem, I go to AA. If I have a cocaine problem, I go to CA. If I have a a people pleasing problem, I go to Al Anon. So like even like within the 12 step system, I think there's like 28 different 12 step programs for 28 different symptomologies. Mm-hmm. And so Buddhism said actually, totally, there's no symptomology, it actually gets into the, the root cause, the root cause is greed, hatred and confusion. So the Buddhist definition of addiction is any behavior strategy that tries to avoid change or control the seemingly difficult conditions of the present moment. Now that can be a phone, that can be pornography, that can be gambling. Buddhism says that the system that you use to alleviate it is totally irrelevant. The fact of the matter is you got to get down to the root causes, which is interesting because a lot of people, as you know, they go to AA and they stop drinking and they pick up a sex addiction. They pick up a food addiction. They pick up a gambling addiction. They just, they just switch seats on the Titanic. Right. Because you're not getting into the, the root cause of the issue. Right. Right. So Buddhism is really good in that sense is that, I mean, the whole, the whole Buddhist system uh, is all about root cause. So it's like, well, let's get down to the lowest common denominator. The lowest common denominator is pain and suffering. It's like, you can't deal with the discomfort of your human experience. You can't deal with the existential reality of how hard it is to be a human. So then you engage in some kind of behavior to alleviate that stress. And everybody, and so from my perspective, everybody's an addict. Every mm-hmm. human being on the planet is doing something yeah. to alleviate that, that dukkha, that stress of being alive. And, and there's varying degrees of that. Like, you know, being addicted to Facebook is probably a little bit less harm than being addicted to heroin, but <laughs> it's all coming from the same place. Still has effect on your relationships, though, if you're, if you're totally. all consumed, still, you know. Exactly. So, I mean, so the, the thing about it is, the Dharma perspective on that stuff, which I'd prefer to use that word, but we can use Dharma and Buddhism interchangeably, no problem. But I th- that's the thing about it that I really like is it's really getting down to like, okay, let's get, let's get right down into the heart of the matter here. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the, what is the, the difference between Dharma and Buddhism? I mean, Buddhism, yeah. Buddhism is the, the guy, Gautama Siddhartha, right? And, and he is, and he teaches the Dharma, I guess. Yeah, well, that's a big conversation too. But like, so we could say, uh, first of all, the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He taught the Dharma. So that's what the guy taught. He actually wasn't even called the Buddha till he was dead for 1500 years. <laughs> he was Siddhartha Gautama. He called himself the, the Tathagata in the early discourses, which means kind of like the true person. So you have this guy who taught this thing called the Dharma. Now, when the Dharma goes to China and becomes Chan, it goes to 
to Japan and becomes Zen, then it, it, it becomes, it becomes when the Dharma goes to different places, it becomes this world religion called Buddhism. But all forms of Buddhism talk about the Dharma. But Buddhism is more the religious system, the system that has kind of been built up around the Dharma. Uh, and you can you can reduce that to, to different belief systems. You can reduce it to different dogmas, dogmas, different patriarchies, different lineages. You can really reduce that down uh, in ways that are kind of very human. Humans do this, very religious, where the Dharma doesn't have anything like that. You can't really deconstruct the Dharma. So uh, it's kind of going back to the original source. So they're, they're actually quite a, big, quite a bit different. Um, and so I, I'm more comfortable using the word Dharma than I am the word Buddhism. I actually don't consider myself a Buddhist. Mm. The B on my hat stands for Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the thing about Buddhism that, that some people sort of look at it and they think, okay, this guy says, first thing he says is life is suffering. And that's, that's kind of funny with some people, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, suffering, probably not the best translation of that, that word. Totally. Definitely not. So, yeah, you, so, yeah, so, yeah. and this is a common problem. People say Buddhism, the Buddhist said life is suffering. He, the suffering comes from this word dukkha, which is this ancient language called Pali. Dukkha kind of, again, like a lot of these ancient languages, a very difficult word to translate into English. It's usually translated as suffering, which we're kind of stuck with. We're not going to convince the Buddhists to change that. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, um, it's a very dynamic word. It's a spectrum word. It has lots of different meanings. But basically what he's saying is that in, in more specific terms, he's saying that, you know, human suffering is part of the human experience. You know, you know, some people call it translate it just as stress, which is maybe the better word to translate it. Life is stressful. Yeah. You know, you you know, you're going to die. Everybody knows they're going to die. They don't know when, you know, we, 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 we don't always get what we want. You know, oftentimes things happen to us that we wish didn't happen to us. Things that we care about, we lose, you know, the, the, the just reality of reality is, is stressful. And that, and the byproduct of that is like, if you're a human being, you're going to, you know, if you work at a paint store, you're going to get paint on your clothes every day. If you live in the human world, you're going to get some suffering in your system, whether you like it or not. It's baked into the system. Deal with that. Yeah. 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 It's going to happen. <laughs> but um, the Dharma also posits a way out of this, uh, this conundrum, right? Or at least a way of accepting it. I think that accepting it's the better word. I don't. I don't think you're going. I don't. I don't think suffering is something that you get out of. I think it's something that you actually embrace. Mm. You know, and so the, the what, what what the out. What, and this is where it gets interesting. The second. So the yes, the first double truth as it's poorly translated as life is suffering. The suffering in life, and then the second one, the more important one, is that the, they usually say the cause of this dukkha, but it's not the cause. It's it's because life is stressful. We react. And so the second noble truth, which is usually craving, uh, clinging, craving, attachment, um, to me, the entire second noble truth in the Buddhist system and all Buddhist systems could be translated as addiction. Yeah. So uh, to be honest with you, and I think, and I have no problem saying this, and I think that there's many Buddhist academics who would back up this statement, is the practice of the Dharma is all about addiction. I mean, the Dharma is a 2,500-year-old addiction treatment program. I mean, that's really what it is. Because that, the Buddha doesn't actually talk about suffering being the problem. 
he talks about the reaction or the relationship to that suffering is actually the problem. And the problem is, is that we, is that we try to fix and we try to change and we try to avoid and we try to control and we try to manipulate our way out of something that you cannot become out of. And so what happens is you pick up these weird behavior strategies. You're like, well, if I drink this, I feel better. If I smoke that, I feel better. And so what happens is you're, you're, you're trying to medicate something that's unmedicatable. Mm. And so what happens is if you look at the, the definition, the problem with addiction is it provides short-term relief but creates long-term harm and consequence. Right. It's like buying it's like buying a flat screen TV with a 29.9% APR credit card. It's like, yeah, you can have the TV now, but you're going to pay <laughs> you're going to pay you're going to pay $1400 for that $300 TV. Yeah. And most people go, I don't care. Yeah. Um so, so, so a lot of this uh, manifests in addictive behavior, you know, of all sorts, right? I mean, it's not just drugs and alcohol or sex or anything like that. It's, it's you can be addicted to a certain way of thinking or a certain way of approaching uh, I mean, problems. some people are addicted or, to cleaning their kitchen. Yeah, you can be, yeah, yeah, anything. It can get in anywhere. It can, it's like a cancer. It can get in literally anywhere. Like overthinking, like you just said. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's totally the craving the clinging the addiction is the problem not the suffering mm -hmm. so i would also say like we almost could say uh, and I, I i would actually have no problem saying this in this conversation is that we could almost translate the first simple truth as trauma mm. like you know life life can be traumatic and so uh addiction the, so what, what, a lot of addiction is what i'm doing to medicate the pain of that trauma you know, and so, so he's really, people get got it wrong. Really, the goal of Dharma practice, the whole Buddhist system of, of training is about uprooting and overcoming that reaction or that addiction. That's right. really the whole game. And so that changes it that changes the Buddhist structure. And I think it changes it in a good way. And you know, I work with people like Stephen Batchelor and some of these uh, kind of becoming more popular now Buddhist academics. I think that the conversation around Buddhism and Dharma practice and mindfulness becomes a lot more dynamic when we when we actually make the shift to focusing that this addiction, craving, clinging thing is actually what we're dealing with, not the suffering. Yeah. So, you know, the root the root of addiction then is sort of what is it like the discomfort of of your unmet desire or your unmet ability to um to order sure. the world the way that you think you should order it in your head yeah pretty much yeah, yeah. i mean you could talk about like i agree with everything you just said it's just a fundamental you know perspective that that you know i don't you know i don't want this moment to be like this it's just not wanting you know it's not embracing the present moment it's wanting things to be different wanting things to be other than the way that they are you know and like that 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 the discomfort of that is where everything arises out of that there's that kind of friction there's reality which is very strict as i'm sure you've noticed mm -hmm. we live in a strict re reality doesn't care what you think yeah no and but then then there's my discomfort with that reality and and out of that discomfort and out of that friction all kinds of shit emerges so how, how do we get to the point where where it's not about getting what we want it's being okay with what we already have well that's exactly right i mean that's that's a great way i mean that's if you look at happiness research that's the main shift happiness is not about getting what you want it's about wanting what you have yeah but getting there is it's that's a, that's a tough place to get to well is it 
you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, for some people, it is. It has been for me. I mean, part of it, a lot of this comes down to actually whether we you want to go there or not. I, I think I think a lot of this comes down to it is a your worldview or your philosophy. Like, first of all, do you even believe that? Some people would say, no, no, no. Get, happiness is about getting what you want. Some people would argue with what you and I just said. So some people aren't even interested in getting there. But yeah. I think the part of the overarching frame is we have to have a worldview, an overarching frame where we're like, we're being a little bit practical. So like for me, the Dharma is like insanely pragmatic. And that's where people get wonky about it because they think Buddhism and they think the Dharma, they think the Buddha is like, it's like a description of how reality operates. Mm. You know, he's not describing something. He's, he, it's not a description of things. It's a prescription. He's trying to tell you to do some things. He's trying to help you. He's like, do this. He, it's very instructive. You yeah. know what I mean? It, it's not, he's not describing a situation to you. He's prescribing a methodology for how to live and how to actually be happy. Well, and, and it seems rather concrete, doesn't it? Like that you got the eightfold path, right? You have uh, right action, right speech. You know, I, I couldn't rattle them all off if I tried probably. But, um, right. but you know, so the, the, the idea is if you want to sort of get your head to the, to the place where, where you're not, everything is not just messing you up all the time, you follow these prescriptions and that will lead you to uh, a better mental place. Exactly. I mean, in other words, yes. So like, this is also interesting. If you were to sit down, so there's all these lists in Buddhism and Dharma, there's all these different <laughs> like lists. That's, what, that's what makes it so annoying. <laughs> but like, if you act, the, the primary one is that you said it, the Eightfold Path. So for example, if you wanted to make, and this is actually fine to do so, I believe, if you wanted to make a comparison between Buddhism and the 12 steps, the Eightfold Path is just the Buddhist version of the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. Eightfold path is, is basically eight things the Buddha is basically saying. So you have, you know, it starts with right vision or appropriate seeing, or what is your perspective? You know, do I, what is my perspective on life? Well, maybe my perspective on life is happiness is about getting what I want and avoiding what I don't want. Well, if that's actually my perspective, well, then you're I'm kind of screwed right <laughs> if that's you're your screwed. perspective. Right. So, you know, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with our intentions, which is kind of how we see things and how we move towards the world. And then the, the next three are about how we behave with, behave with other people, our speech, our talking, uh, our actions and our work, our, our livelihood, how we make money, um, our, our effort, how much effort and willingness we put into this stuff, mindfulness, our ability to be self-aware and our ability to integrate all these ideas. The thing that's so fabulous about the Eightfold Path is these are not mystical, esoteric things. It's like talking with one of them. Like everybody knows what talking is like, they're not mysterious things. They're like real practical, obvious things. They're like views and opinions, talking, living, how you make money. They're, 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 they're shit. You and I probably have five of them going right now. You know, they're, they're, they're really practical things. And so the other thing that's really kind of annoying is that the Buddhist recovery people haven't, they, they kind of gloss over it. They, they, they don't really put it front and center like this, the Buddhist path to recovery is to cultivate the eightfold path there's no argument about that i wish they'd put that more front and center mm. the other thing that's really ridiculous is there's actually hardly any books on buddhism on the eightfold path i can only name like two mm. it's the most important central idea within the entire buddhist th world of thought and yet nobody seems to be interested in it like 
you know, 50 books a month come out on the practice of mindfulness and they have all these books on all these esoteric, ridiculous things, but nobody seems to be interested in the one thing the guy actually told you to do, (laughs) which I just think is amazing and a huge phenomenon. Don't really see much of it in Mahayana Buddhism or Zen. I mean, Zen has the precepts, which are, I guess, somewhat similar, but it's, it's not the, the traditional eightfold path. I don't think I've ever heard that discussed in a, in a Zen center in yeah, 30 it's years. Too, the Zen people are big. I'm not giving you any meditation instructions, but yet they write these volumes of <laughs> emptiness and all this esoteric shit. It's like, that's not helpful. Well, uh, Dogen tends to like to hide the ball when it comes to what exactly we're supposed to be doing while we're sitting there, which is yeah, that's not a good way to put it. Yeah. He hides <laughs> the ball. Yeah. He's a great right. philosophical thinker. So I think a lot of times, uh, Buddhism for sure has been far removed from its original practicality and has become more a, a kind of, you know, a system of, of mystical, esoteric, philosophical, conceptual stuff that's really borderlines religious ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was a, I think the Buddha would be very unhappy about that. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. I mean, it, one of the things that's kind of given me, uh, Spilka's, I guess that's a New York word, about, uh, about like Dogen and Zen is the, is the very sort of airy fairy esoteric nature of it. And it's, it's not at all really grounded in, and if you have the time and the, and the, and and the discipline to put into it, um, you know, great, but most people don't. Um, and also too, we have to, we, and I love Dogen. I don't want to talk trash. Yeah, no, I, but you know, know, this is, this is, no, this is a guy living in, in the second, Second century in rural China, and he was a monk. Like you know, also, he, he was right? a monk. Like you know, <laughs> so. a lot of his shit's not going to be that helpful. Like he didn't have to deal. He didn't have email and taxes and Facebook and <laughs> global warming, and he didn't have this shit. I mean, what kind of stuff did he have to deal with? So it's just like it doesn't translate into modernity very well, right? I mean, well, you know, so the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, very concrete. You can translate it in, in, to to a degree into today, and and in fact. Big time, you know no the, the way it sort of dovetails with with just you know Western psychology. Although I, I mean, the um, I mean, does it does it dovetail well with Western psychology? Because you know you have a, a, a very different view on what what the self is. Do you not in in Western psychology versus? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I think it does dovetail well, and I and that's kind of the work that I do is what I call secular dharma, which I have a nonprofit called Secular Dharma Foundation. I think that modern Western psychology is more in line with early Buddhist thought than much Buddhism is. Hmm. Because if you look at, so so this is just an interesting historical fact. Every time the Dharma goes to a new location, so the Dharma goes to China. Well, the Dharma affects the way the Chinese people live, and then the Chinese people affect the Dharma. So there's a kind of interplay between the the teachings and the culture. Well, so Dharma comes to America, Buddhism comes to America, and what happens? Well, there's a conversation around psychology in science because that's kind of how we think. Mm-hmm. So, so I think modernity, modern psychological therapeutic practices have a lot to offer the Dharma, and the Dharma has a lot to offer that. So I think a relationship and a conversation, and this is why a lot of the work I do in addiction now is all clinical. I have no interest in creating some you know, I think Buddhism, you know, like they try to do refuge recovery, recovery Dharma. Right. People have tried to make Buddhist systems that parallel the 12 steps, and it's been totally a dismal failure. Mm. I think it actually does much better in a clinical 
capacity because we have such great uh, inventions in the clinical world that I think it actually works better there. Uh, and I think that the, the emergence of the two, I mean, you, you have things like contemplative neuroscience now. I think the marriage between science and spirituality uh, is a great marriage. And I think we're just scratching the surface on it. And as far as addiction goes, that's the, that's the, the part that I'm most interested in is, is how can what you said, how can modern psychology and Dharma uh, help people? So that's the question. How do we help people? That's all I care about at the end of the day. And giving them a book on Dogen, maybe it's not that helpful. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the place where it does seem to intersect um, is is with cognitive behavioral therapy, because it, it, totally. seem, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of this idea, even in the in the Eightfold Path, of you, you sort of have to change your perspective in the way you look at things, and that's kind of what they teach you in, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, like how to sort Absolutely. of reorder what you're thinking and what's going on inside, you, inside your head. That's a Buddhist practice. I mean, yeah. that's why MBCT is so huge now, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I have a really good friend of mine who's in the recovery world named Jeff Browning, who lives in Nashville, Tennessee. He was one of my good, good friends when I first started doing these things, and this was like 15 years ago in Nashville, Tennessee. He was at a, a cognitive behavioral therapy, like training training, clinical training. And about halfway through the training, he raised his hand and he said, you guys, he said, this is just Buddhism. <laughs> and of course, the, the, the Christian people down there weren't happy about that, but he was totally right. He's like, you guys, and, it, I, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think that, that, that but I think you're right. I think that's a, a perfectly good example. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a really great example of how these two worlds can complement each other. I mean, what would you recommend for someone who is interested in this and is just kind of has doesn't have much of a history with Buddhism, but kind of likes this idea of of you know embracing a philosophy of, of four noble truths, eightfold path? Like, because yeah. I mean, to me, it's like meditation is almost. I mean, almost. It's essential, really, because otherwise, it I'm not sure step, how you it is sit step down. Eleven. And, last time I checked, you know. Yeah, prayer and meditation, but you know, I think I think maybe Bill might have meant it in a slightly different way. Um, but you have to give Bill credit for having the, for, for putting the word meditation in there in the 1930s. Yeah, that that word was not around. And I would just prayer and meditation. What are they? They're just contemplative practices. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a so long really history of contemplative to practices in the Christian tradition as well. So it's yeah. totally, yeah. Christian centering prayer is basically yeah. mindfulness of breathing. Yep. I mean, there's so much overlap between these things, but, but I, I think that the person that I give the most credit to, and I respect the most when it comes to the world of Buddhism and 12 steps, Kevin Griffin definitely gets the trophy. And so people who are, people who are interested in recovery and Buddhism should just read Buddhism in the 12 steps. Uh, a book written by Kevin Griffin. I think it came out in 2004. I mean, that's the entry point in. And then from there, you can go different places. Kevin actually has other books as well, Living Kindness. Uh, his second book, A Burning Desire, which actually didn't do very well as a book, is one of his best books. But if you were interested in 12-step in, in, in recovery, let's just say, in Buddhist angle, if you're interested in bringing those worlds together, Kevin Griffin has completely, he has a workbook. I mean, his, his stuff is the best. There's also another really good guy named John Bruna, who's out here in Colorado, who has a mindfulness and recovery workbook. He's more from the Tibetan tradition, but his stuff is really, really good. Um, but as far as like, you know, the, the, the refuge recovery book written by Noel Levine, my friend, my, he was my, one of my teachers for a long time. We don't really talk anymore. Uh, kind of tragic there, but like the refuge recovery book's actually pretty good. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the recovery Dharma stuff, I think is terrible. I think people should just stay away from that shit because they have <laughs> no idea what they're doing. And I, they, it's been a dismal failure. And that was a reaction to the Noah Levine incident with all his stuff that went down with him. So the, the, it's going to take a long time for the Buddhist recovery world to recover from all that horse shit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, that's just a sad fact. But if you are interested in those two worlds, I think the way to go is to go with the Kevin Griffin stuff and then just see where you're, where you gravitate to from there. Yeah, we uh, we reviewed the Recovery Dharma book a bunch of episodes ago. Oh, send me and, the link on that. I'd love to see it. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a cursory overview, and you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we both like the the philosophy. Uh, by the way, I, I have a, a co-host who couldn't make it, so apologies for his okay. his not being able to be here. That's but nice. um, but it, but I get the sense even at the time that trying sort of trying to graft those things together was it was a little ham handed and maybe didn't really hit it the right way um but no yeah. that, that ball definitely got dropped and rolled down the hill there's no doubt about it um so for people who aren't grounded in the 12 steps and, and are looking for you know a way to incorporate some buddhist practice into their recovery um because a lot of people have gone through like i don't know if you're familiar with like this naked mind which is basically a cognitive behavioral it was a book written by a woman i don't, named, know, I, I don't know much about it i know i know enough about it to actually be pretty ignorant about it i've mostly heard <laughs> of it but I, i'd actually now i'd actually like to check it out a little bit because i'd be curious to see what they have to say yeah it, it was kind of instrumental in my own recovery journey um you know, I read it like four years ago and it, and it, I, I kind of got it for what it was at the time, which is basically a way of sort of reframing the role that alcohol plays in your life, uh, seeing it as the, an addictive poison and, and yeah. really questioning what benefit you're deriving from it and changing your way of thinking about uh, sobriety as being a, a state of abundance rather than a state of deprivation. I, I, I thought it was a well, a well done book and a lot of people have, have that I've talked to have gotten a lot out of it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people coming from that angle who maybe don't, don't necessarily need the 12 steps in Buddhism to, to start in the same place and then diverge from there. Um, yeah, right. So, and, you know, the thing about AA, which is, which is one of the greatest parts about it, as far as I'm concerned, is, is the, the sense of community that you get, right? Oh, I mean, 100%. there's a meeting everywhere. You can find people. If you don't like a meeting, there's always another meeting, right? Um, you know, um, what is there for that with Buddhism? Is there any sort of zero zilch. zero? <laughs> no, no. Got to build Even it. If you live in like LA, I mean, yeah. It, 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 you know, the, I always tell people too that I work with who 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 want to be in recovery, but they don't like AA. I'm like, just go anyway. <laughs> like, don't you know? If you don't want to work the steps, don't. If you don't want to get a sponsor, don't. If you don't want to believe in God, don't. I mean, let, and I use the third tradition as the linchpin. The only requirement for membership is is the desire to stop drinking. If you don't want to drink, you got every right to sit in that room. Right. Every right to sit in that room. And so, so just go and make some friends at least. Like, you know, that's what I tell people. It's like, don't even, don't even worry about all that other stuff. And they say, well, they say, I have to do this. You know, you don't have to do shit. If you don't want to drink, you have every right to sit in that room and maybe make some friends and meet some people. You know, I think that, that that's one of the things you have to do. Because if you're looking for an alternative that has community and support, there just isn't one. I mean unless you want to join your church. But if the reason you don't want to go to AA is God, I don't think you're going to do that well at your local church. <laughs> no, but I mean, maybe you could join a local Buddhist Sangha, but you're not going to have, it's not going to be focused on your recovery. 
Yeah, and there's not that. I mean, that's just like yes, if you can, sure. But like, there's that's not really readily available. Not like AA. If I mean, yeah, no, you're in Long no. Island. Like, how many meetings are there a week in Long Island? A couple hundred. Yeah, sure. Right. There's no, there's no Buddhist sangha. <laughs> right. On Long so Island. Like, when people don't want to go to AA, I just basically tell them just get over it and go anyway because those people will help you. You know, and so there's really not a version of that. And if there's a refuge recovery meeting, go to it. If there's a recovery Dharma meeting, go to it. I mean, I don't, I, 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 I believe everything is what the Buddha calls ahipasako. Come and see for yourself. And I'm a big fan of contempt prior to investigation. Like mm-hmm. if you don't want to go, don't go, but at least go first and then make your mind up. Right. Right. You know, don't, don't, you know, so I think that, you know, there's just not, you know, like, again, like I said, I think that people who are interested are probably better off with this. They're probably better off picking up a John Cabot Zinn book mm-hmm. or a Judson Brewer book. They're probably better off looking at some mindfulness, Western secular kind of stuff. Dan Harris's podcast, 10% happier is fabulous. Um, there's definitely some stuff out there. I think the secular mindfulness stuff has got a, is a better entry point for a lot of people in recovery mm-hmm. um, more so than Buddhism. So I would steer people to, a, you know, go take an MBSR class, go take a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, pick up a John Kabat-Zinn book, check out some Daniel Goleman stuff on emotional intelligence, even Tara Brock. You know, I think that people who are new to this stuff, who want some concrete stuff, um, are better off actually going to the secular mindfulness world because it's a lot more practical that way. Um, or take some online classes like I have, I have a I have a bunch of online class. I have a mindfulness class you can sign up for I have a Buddhist recovery class you know it's like 50 bucks you know and it's got a bunch of stuff in there there's stuff out there but you got to dig a little bit more you can find that at your website davesmithdharma.com definitely but they're both on there yeah yeah I'm not I'm not really sure what this mindfulness stuff is all about <laughs> to be honest with you the, the secular mindfulness thing just kind of blew right by me. I know it's really popular in the culture right now. And, and you know, my wife who works for a, a, a school district, you know, they have mindfulness days and they bring in teachers to do mindfulness. And, and I'm not sure how you really divorce that from Buddhism <laughs> or from well, the yeah, Dharma, you, you, but it's... You make a good point. Yeah. I just don't really... Understand. I mean, so, so, so here's how you do it, right? So you have the Eightfold Path, which we talked about. One of the factors, one of the branches in the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. So people just, they take the practice of mindfulness, they extract it from the rest of the system, and they teach people present time awareness, they teach people mindfulness of the body, live in the now, you know, unhook from destructive thinking, you know, a lot of that stuff, which is, it's all Buddhist, right? but... Uh, but but they're taking out the, the they're really the practical. They're like, do sit down and do this. Sit down, put your attention on the sensations of your in and out breath. When you notice your mind wander, notice the mind wander and just come back. The good thing about the secular mindfulness stuff is they're giving you really concrete things that you can just sit down and do. Mm-hmm. So so that's sort of a practice that you could you could recommend to somebody. You know, in ter- if somebody wanted to start a meditation practice, you know, how how would they start? That's what I would do is, is, is get on the 10% happier app shit, get on headspace, mm-hmm. get on Sam Harris, get on some mindfulness app and just, or even take my mindfulness for everyone course. There's 28 guided meditations in there. You know, you can do them on your phone and just start practicing, just start doing some guided mindfulness practice and see if it helps you. 
And the good thing, if you can do that, you know, you can download an app. I mean, that's quick and dirty and easy, but that's for people who have addiction, who have their, you know, they have the obsession of mind or whatever, there some basic preliminary mindfulness stuff might actually give them tremendous relief. Yeah, that was sort of a question I've been, I've been thinking about is whether or not mindfulness is or, you know, Dharma practice is more is effective at all if you are still using. I don't think so. I mean, yeah. hey, what the hell, give it a shot. <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, I mean, I did both. I mean, like, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, like, um, I would, if somebody was actively using, I wouldn't tell them not to practice mindfulness. That would be silly. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I, I, so I think I would say go for it. But, you know, um, they're kind of both, they're kind of going in the opposite directions. Like addict, drug use goes this way and mindfulness goes that way. So you, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the problem, but I say, what the hell, man, maybe it just, Give it a shot. maybe it'll just ruin drinking for you. Like, like going to AA. Yeah, if it ruins drinking for you, <laughs> great. Like you go to AA and then you go out and all you're doing is drinking with a head full of AA. Uh, you know, it's yeah. the same thing with a Dharma practice. You can see in excruciating detail how much you're fucking up your life. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, totally. So what, do you have anything going on right now that you want to plug or you want to talk about, uh, besides the stuff on your website? I know we didn't really talk um, about, um, or did, did we talk about the emotional, um, what was it? The, uh, CEB stuff. Cultivating emotional balance. I yeah. Have a, yeah. So I, I would just say, I don't want to do the shameless self-promotion thing. Cause I could told people, everything that I do. That that's important to me is literally on my website, davesmithdharma.com. And it's not a very big website. Like you can find stuff quickly. So people can go just to say that the low hanging fruit, people can go to iTunes or Spotify and listen to my Dave Smith Dharma podcast. There's hundreds of episodes. You can just listen for free. Um, you know, I have a Wednesday night class people can sign up for called Dharma Live Online, which is a Wednesday night class. It meets on Zoom and all the audio is recorded. So they'll get access to that. They can meet with other people. That's on my website. Well, there's your, blue- there's your, there's your group right there. Uh, that, know, there's, exactly. <laughs> there's a little a little nascent sangha there for for Buddhists well, in actually, recovery. It, it, it actually started from a recovery group because I used to have a Buddhist recovery group that was Wednesday nights. But then what happened is a lot of people who weren't in recovery mm. wanted to come, and they said, "Why don't you just make it for everybody? Why does it have to be for recovery?" And I was like, "Well, that's a good question." Yeah, because if if, if Buddhism is the same for recovery as it is for everybody, it just I was just basically cutting people out. So, so it's a it's from seven seven to eight fifteen Mountain Standard Time every Wednesday. People can sign up for that class. There's a link on my thing, and there's about forty people in there, and that's a good way to to practice. And I have a mindfulness course people can take. A Buddha, I have a bunch of online courses that you can just take. They're easy. They're fun. They're really good. They're not very expensive. Um, and so that's they can start with me there. Uh, so I have a bunch of free stuff out there. I have some free for service stuff. So I'm, I'm around, I'm available for anybody who wants to connect with me. I always encourage people to reach out. Um, I try to, you know, like you reached out and I got back to you. I, I, I try to get back to everybody. I'm not that busy. I'm not, I'm not a famous Buddhist teacher, nor do I ever <laughs> aspire to be one. I like, I like the level of that I'm at. I'm kind of like a, uh, a nineties alternative college radio <laughs> band. That's about as popular as I ever want to get. So, um, I definitely appreciate you reaching out. I love this conversation. I mean, maybe we can yeah. even do it again because I would love to. Um, there's a lot, you know, we, we're just scratching the surface here this morning. 
Sure. And, you know, if you guys want to go below the surface a bit, I, I highly recommend uh, uh, Dave's podcast. Uh, he gets goes in pretty deep in some 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 of this stuff, and uh, it's really worthwhile listening to. So definitely do check it out. Uh, and, yeah, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, next time we can do this, I'll have... I'll have my co-host on, who is not a Buddhist, decidedly, and uh, so maybe he could ask questions from a, a, fr- a different perspective, you know? Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dave. Take care. All right, buddy. We'll see you next time. I have a good Bigfoot story. Okay. Let's do the... Uh, finally found a Bigfoot. We're covering the news. Hold on a second. If you... Shit. What? If you play that music on your end... Can you hear this? No, really. I think it's just bleeding through your headphones. Hmm. Okay. Recovery in the news... I can't hear it at all. Just you wait. Say it. I'm going to cut. Say it. (laughs) Recovery in the news. I I don't know why it doesn't play through the board. Everything else does. We have to figure that out. Yeah. I may just have to put it on the Go XLR here and I can hit it and sing to it. Yeah. That might be the, the best. I know that they, they can do it because, you know, shows do this all the time. Someone's controlling the board. Someone's in a different country and they both hear it. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, We're covering I, the news. Yeah. This is kind of a late one today. Uh, I'm going to do the second one that I sent you because that's a local story too. Um, we had a situation here in, in Long Island where a bus driver was fired for allegedly drinking on the job. And she claimed it was a mistake. Um, This is from News 12 Long Island, uh, our hard-hitting journalistic uh, uh, monolith of of news here on the island. Tara Joyce? Yes. That's my neighbor. She's the the main anchor. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. She still works here? Does she? I don't watch the show. I think. Anyway, a bus bus driver in Smithtown, New York, was fired for allegedly drinking an alcoholic beverage while driving students home from school in an emotional interview. Amal Hanna says it was all a big misunderstanding. When heading out to work Wednesday, Hanna said she grabbed what she thought was a regular seltzer her roommate left in the fridge. Hanna said she had no idea there's alcohol in White Claws. She, she said she had trouble tasting due to her chemotherapy, so she didn't taste any alcohol in it. Oh. But when a parent spotted the hard seltzer in her cup holder on the bus, Hanna was immediately removed. The We Transport bus company released a statement that said the alleged conduct is completely unacceptable and the driver was immediately removed from service. Police in Suffolk County wow. said Hanna did not realize it was an alcoholic beverage and no charges will be filed. Several parents said Hanna, who has been a bus driver for 15 years, was meticulous, always on time, and treated their kids as if they were their own. Um, poor Hanna. If, the, if she actually really doesn't know that a white claw has alcohol children. in it. Uh, I mean... I, I don't know. Um, was that the first white claw she's ever had before? Like, if she, or, we want people who can't tell when they're drinking an alcoholic beverage, they're that oblivious. 
driving the bus. Like, even if that's an accident, it's just as bad. I mean, if her roommate keeps him around the house, like, did it never come up in conversation? Like, number one, should she be stealing her roommate's seltzers? That's number one. Yeah, she didn't ask. Number two, um, I don't know. It says right on the front of the can, uh, alcohol in it. But um, do you think that's plausible? No. No? I think she's full of shit. I think she's uh, clearly... You have to be so out of it. I mean, she was on chemotherapy, so she's fighting cancer. Is that even true, though? It is. You see the picture of her. It's yeah. She's definitely fighting cancer. So I don't buy it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, But but you know that also speaks to sort of like why are we injecting alcohol into every fucking possible thing that it can be put into? Like, what's wrong with just seltzer water? Yeah, why do we need it? Is this like people who don't like the taste of beer just so they can get their ethyl alcohol into their body in some way that they just stick it? You know, we had Bartles and James's wine coolers. Do you remember those things? They were this sickly sweet fucking, um, you know, 12, they were some high percentage of alcohol or something. Yeah. What? Did you use those to to trap and kill bees when uh, back when they were out? Because I remember (laughs) I was, I must have been eight years old. And I remember being in our backyard and it was you know really hot and there was these bees. So we would put a Bartles and James because my parents had had them for the whatever party was going on. And we'd put the Bartles and James, you know, with only a quarter of it full. And then the bees would come up and we watched the bees crawl in to taste that get drunk and fall in. It was very sickly sweet. I don't ever remember doing that. I, re- I remember drinking them when there was nothing else around to drink. Um, yeah, because they were pretty gross and a couple of those was not, uh, but I, I don't know. I kind of see white claw to, to, to be in that, you know, category. Yeah, I, I just don't know, you know, if it's uh better tasting than Bartles and James was, but I don't know. Uh, when I was in college, it was Boone's farms took over. It was that same kind of thing. So yeah. mostly the girls who were, would bring these peach fuzzy navel, you know, it was this sparkly, sickly sweet wine cooler stuff did, so did you ever get, did you ever get into the um drinking the night train and the wild irish rose those those mm-hmm. cheap cheap wines no oh, man we went maybe, straight for the cheap vodka maybe because we were in the bronx and there was a lot of like uh hobos drinking that stuff on the street but you go to the liquor store you get a you get a quart of that stuff for like a buck 80 and um you know that that gets you really fucked up i uh yeah, i broke my ankle ripple. once leaving the liquor store uh with one of those in my hand stepped off the curb and they were milling the roadway and it just went sideways. And then I went down like a sack of shit and and tore three ligaments. And, uh, and I had to go on the dead tour that, that spring with a cast on. Um, yeah. And I was, I was consequences. Yeah. But I didn't care, you know, I actually broke into one show and I, and I'm not proud of this because gate crashing was a real problem at the end of the grateful dead experience. But one night I was down in, uh, in Pittsburgh it was crazy. There were riots that night. It was just a, an, an insane scene. 1988 Pittsburgh spring tour. Um, and I had a cast on my foot and someone popped the door from the inside and we all bum rushed the security guard and knocked him flat on his ass and just ran into the show. And uh, I'm hobbling by with my cast on with a cane, you know, <laughs> crazy shit. But no, I learned no lessons from that, by the way. Not, none whatsoever. That was just the beginning of my drinking career. Anyway. It all started. We should, uh, and we're getting short on time, so we should now yes. proceed on to the Week in Weird, which you can't hear that either, right? 
week in weird. Oh, uh, God damn it. Okay. Back by popular demand, um, we have Bigfoot filmed from train in Colorado. Oh, I saw this. This made like real news. Oh, it did. It did. Uh, huh. By Tim Banal. An intriguing video filmed from a passenger train in Colorado shows a curious bipedal creature that some believe to be Bigfoot lurking on a mountain. The remarkable footage came to light this week by way of Shannon Parker, who explained to a local media outlet that the sighting took place on Sunday as she and her husband, Stetson, were riding <laughs> on the narrow gauge railroad, which connects the communities of Durango and Silverton. As the trip was winding down, the couple looked out the window of the train and were stunned to see what appeared to be a creature walking along a mountainside on two feet before squatting down in some brush. Fortunately, the couple were not the only passengers to see the possible Sasquatch, as a man sitting next to them also observed the uh, peculiar creature and managed to film it with his cell phone. According to Shannon, she later showed the footage and some pictures from the sighting to workers on the train, and they had no explanation for what the oddity on the mountainside could have been. When we spoke to the conductor <laughs> on the train, he told us he had never seen nothing like it before. <laughs> she recalled to Newsweek. And he himself had experienced unexplainable things while snowshoeing in those mountains. <laughs> Since being posted online, the footage has spread like wildfire. He uses that a lot. It spreads like spreads wildfire. Spreads like wildfire, yep. With many marveling at how clear it is in comparison to the average purported uh, Bigfoot video. That said, response to the sighting has been largely mixed, and some suggesting that the creature in the scene is a genuine Sasquatch, while more skeptical observers have posted that perhaps it was some kind of prank, either yes. orchestrated by the train company or a mischievous individual, hoping to pull a fast one on the passengers. Um, what do you make of the footage? We should actually put... This I'll tell you funny. what I make of the footage. I think that train make? company is fucking genius because they... <laughs> They're going to get, you know how many people are going to come and ride that train hoping to catch a sight of that thing? That is a it's, good idea. It's some guy in a costume employed mm -hmm. by the train company. That's my my personal belief. Well, what do I'm you think, Nat? You think it's fucking Bigfoot, don't you? I think probably it's a Sasquatch. <laughs> I think that's the most, you know, Did you, simplest explanation. Have you seen the video? It looks like a guy in a suit to me. Yeah, I'm going to, I've got it here. People on a train in Southwest you oh, watch? that's totally a Sasquatch. <laughs> he's sitting down. He's in a big field. Uh, it looks like he's taking a shit. Yeah, he's squatting. He's squatting because he's probably hot in that costume. He's got to wait until the train gets there before he gets up and does his Sasquatch impersonation. Um, we will we'll post that in the show notes. Yes, I will we actually will. try and remember to do that. <laughs> but uh, what do you guys think? Right? I said Mike R at middleagesrecovery.com for your take on this Bigfoot video. All right, let's wrap it up. I got to go get my ticker looked at. Um, okay, well, that about does it for today, folks. I know I had a great time. Did you? Yes, I did. Um, thank you so much for listening. Visit us at <laughs> middleagesrecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us at twat you twit on X. Support your favorite show. That's us. Give us a five-star review. We will read it. X. Please. We're calling it X, X now like everybody else. 
I guess so. It's X. I mean, I don't know what to say. Is it a tweet? Is it a post? Is it an how X? You gonna, what are you going to say? X us an X, you X? Like, you how are you going to do that? X you Xer. I yeah. like tweets and twat. You twit. Right. Okay. Um, go to um, patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages for a higher level of hanging out on the Discord. Um, we get uh, we have a lot of uh, a fun on the Discord group, a lot of good support going on. Please join us. Um, meet us on Facebook, Recovery in the Middle Ages Facebook page, and uh, join the discussion group. And finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. And if you get anything out of this show whatsoever, spread the love and grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress, not perfection. See you next time. Stay fresh, cheese bags. Be good. Bye. Uh.